Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Yeah, but here we are. We're seven days out um, from my birthday. Yeah, your 80th birthday. Okay. How do you feel about that? No different than 79 or 68 Mm -hmm. or 52. Okay. Um, When you think about, well, when you were a young lad, did you ever imagine life at, at age 80 in the year 2023? Did you ever have sort of like, I wonder what it'll, flying cars and all that? Did you ever have that kind of daydream? No. no. I was busy doing music. And yeah. so that just continued. And mm-hmm. I just knew I was going to do music forever, whatever that age was. Mm-hmm. Hands down in it. You were in it. I think the only things that have changed, I knew I would no longer be a boy soprano. Yeah. So those days had to go away. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a temporary thing, being a boy Absolutely. soprano. Absolutely. Um, cool. Well, we've got a number of subjects to cover here. I mean, it's a big moment in a person's life, turning 80, if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's start here. When you think about where you've been, uh, who you've met, who you've engaged with, I'm thinking about kind of a retrospective on kind of um, formation and influence. So the question is, can you name your top three, the sort of formative moments in your life? Who or what shaped you? I would say certainly um, going to Minnehaha Academy and being under the baton of Harry Opal, Mm -hmm. because he basically took me under his wing, Mm -hmm. realized that I was a young kid with promise, Mm -hmm. and said, hmm, he never said that, but he did. He's the one that suggested I start organ lessons with Arthur Jennings. Mm. He's the one that uh, in choir, we did so much great repertoire. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot of great repertoire from him. Mm -hmm. Um, He also was a fabulous singer, bass, baritone. And so I engaged him later in life as a soloist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And then I was very happy that when he retired from Minnehaha, Mm -hmm. I was able to organize a large gathering of hundreds of singers from his 40 years at Minnehaha to come together and salute him over at the Ordway. Yeah, right. I I recall that moment. Um, So that would be one. So so Harry, being exposed to and meeting Harry Opal, there's one. Right. That would be for sure. I would say uh, in my sophomore year at the university, when the a job opening came up to be in what was then the Minneapolis Symphony, right, and mm. I auditioned and got in. So let's talk about that. That audition moment is is an interesting one. So, what was the audition? So you're you were eighteen or nineteen? Uh, I was nineteen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it would have been in the fall, yeah. and, and you go in. What did you do? You remember what you played for the audition? They just handed me. Uh, Skrovachevsky was the conductor. Yeah, handed me. Uh, well, they wanted me to audition percussion, piano, organ, all three. Okay. So they handed you, for instance, piano. Uh, orchestral repertoire where there were big piano parts Mm -hmm. like Stravinsky, Petrushka would Mm. be an example. Okay. Um, And organ would be things that had an organ part that Mm -hmm. was part of an orchestral piece. Yeah. Uh, You know, like the Saint-Saëns symphony. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
percussion. Well, it was huge. It was just all kinds of things. Uh, it was uh, Gershwin and the mallet uh, stuff. All the mallet stuff. That was the big deal. Well, because okay. what they basically wanted me for was to be the mallet player. Okay. Because I had been playing mallets. That was my co uh, major as. I was doing piano and percussion. Right. And I didn't do organ because I continued to study with Arthur Jennings, right. who had retired from the university but was the organist at Plymouth Congregational Church. Right. So I yeah. stayed with him. Okay, so that moment you're a sophomore in in college at the University of Minnesota and you get this chance and your your prof as I understand it, your professors put you up to it. Marv Dahlgren put me up to it. Marv yeah. was in, he was my percussion professor, right. but he was also a full-time member of the Minneapolis Symphony. Right. And so you go in and you play and but it's sort of an interesting hybrid role. Like it's not just percussion. They oh, also no. wanted you to, I suspect for the Minnesota Orchestra, I'd like to see them audition someone today who's a mallet player and a piano player and an organist. Um, I suspect you were one of a kind. Yeah, I think I was. There so you that's go. really how it start, how it happened. Yeah. And what was your first day? Do you remember your first like signing up? And did you have to do like paperwork with the HR team? And ah, uh, no, <laughs> those words did not exist. <clears throat> no. no. Okay. So uh, uh, is it sophomore. So uh, first one, you met Harry Opel in, in, in high school. Uh, second sort of formative moment, you uh, end up joining the Minnesota Orchestra mm -hmm. uh, at 19. Uh, what else stands out? Uh, I would say the third was when uh, the Metropolitan Opera always came to Northrop mm, right. in yep. May uh, for a week-long tour. And uh, I would go to those operas when I could. But uh, then George Schick, right. who was the second income, he was like the right. assistant conductor, and, conducted and, everything. And, and, you, and you covered this in the last episode when you were down in St. Olaf. You, you re relayed the story there of, right. of being asked to come out. And then you realized that, well, you needed yeah. a, mm. a bit of time away from the orchestra. And Yeah, know. but the thing that was great about about going, I then had a whole summer of studying uh, at the Metropolitan Opera. And yeah. so... Who did that, you study with? George Schick. Okay. Yeah. So the fact was going out there and having singers sing this, the, the operas, and we went through probably, I'm going to say, 30 of the most important operas. Mm -hmm. And we spent time doing it. And... It was uh, during that time. And, and your role there is to be an accompanist. I was to sit at the piano as an accompanist, coach the singers. We had to study. We spent a couple of days per opera mm -hmm. and then moved on because George Schick said, I want you to learn the tradition. Mm -hmm. You can do it any other way, but you need to know what is the basis of the tradition. But you're in New York in, was this 68 or 69? Or mm -hmm. no, no, no. I was born, right? I was. Yes. Okay. So it would have been in, in probably 69, 70, something like that. Right yeah. before, so it had been right before you left the orchestra. Well, that was the reason. So you, you did the thing in New York and then you came back and then and you then got the it, offer. And then when I got the offer from Minnesota Opera, right. so then I quit the orchestra. Okay, but, but so this is, this is interesting. It's 1967, 68. A lot of interesting things are happening in the world and you're in New York City. Mm-hmm. For six weeks, eight weeks, did yeah, you? Yeah, eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Where'd you live? I lived across the street at. Across uh, the street from? Lincoln Center. Okay. At the Upper hotel, uh, right? I'll think of the name in a minute. Still there, a big hotel right across the street, right there on 68th and Broadway. Yeah. We were given a small stipend. Yeah. And I remember that there was one. There were eight of us in the program, yeah. six from New York, two of us not. Yeah. The other fellow was from San Francisco, mm -hmm. and Monroe was his name. So Monroe, yeah. I went to and I said, 
you know, we had to figure out where we were going to live that we could afford. Yeah. And I said, hey, would you mind, uh, why don't we go over to the hotel across the street and say, we'd like to share a room, two beds, and you don't have to clean it every day. Clean it once a week. Yeah. And can we get a special rate? Oh. Which I I and they said sure. Huh. And there so, you go. So we lived across the street because we needed to be close to Lincoln Center. Right. Yeah. And where'd you eat? Well, just delis. All oh, delis like and stuff. Whatever we could find. Yeah. yeah. And and just on that note, I know that when you were out there, you had a friend from the one of the, was it the principal bass player or one of the bass players from Minnesota Orchestra was doing a no. concert. Uh, the, it was a bass. It was the guy named Gary Carr. Okay. Gary was at that time regarded as the best classical bass player in the world. Oh, okay. And so, how I mean, did you know him? He had come here to Minneapolis some years before, and I accompanied him for oh, something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'd met him once. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so he, and somehow he knew I was studying in New York. Mm -hmm. And he called me up and said, uh, this week I'm playing uh, the Gunther Schuller String Bass Concerto with the New York Philharmonic. Right. And it's the hardest concerto I have ever played, to which I thought to myself, you know, if this is the hardest for Gary Carr... This must be something. Yeah. And so he said, what I'm wondering is, I have the full score. Yeah. Could we get together some night and you just uh, give me some idea of what the orchestra part is like? So when I go into rehearsal, yeah. I have some clue of what I'm dealing with. Right. So we did. So right. I came in and, uh, you know, did a reduction and played what the orchestra was going to do. Right. And, but then you went to a rehearsal. So then I went to the final rehearsal mm -hmm. of that. And I remember sitting down in a thing. And, and this is with the New York Philharmonic yep. in their hall. Right. And you've got the score. The score. And, and, and uh, then this man, I didn't turn around. This man yells out, who has the score? And I went, uh, I raised my hand. I do. So suddenly Leonard Bernstein sits down next to me and I said, hi, <laughs> you know, and then this very gentle voice from the row behind said, may I join you? And I said, uh, yes, Mr. Copeland. And so, <laughs> so I had a... one of them on each side. And of course, unfortunately, never had a, yeah, a camera there to take but, a photo. But the notion of, of Leonard Bernstein, Philip Burnell and Aaron Copeland all sharing a score while Gary Carr is is rehearsing. Right. Yeah. I can think, I can see why that might be a, a formative moment. You it know, was. In, in that time. Well, um, what was formative was then to come back after that summer and have Minnesota Opera call and say, we'd like you to become music director. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, at that point was when I resigned from the orchestra and went with the opera. Yeah. And then I would say, about the same time, the f the next formative moment would have been in that fall of 1969 when I had been a church organist uh, right. at several places. But when I got the call from Plymouth Congregational Church to come and become organist director yeah. at the church, and at that time, uh, I thought, boy... There needs to be a choral organization in town right. to do something other than the 10 or 12 war horses. Right. And so that was how I convinced uh, Howard Kahn, the senior minister, that the church might start something which we called Plymouth Music Series. Right. And that's, that was certainly a very formative time. Yeah, indeed. Well, one more formative. Sure, yeah. Probably uh, would have been 2002, uh, three years before, <clears throat> uh, a group of, of the conductors, choral conductors in the area, uh, had a lunch meeting. It, uh, I did not realize it was a setup, uh, but it was. And we got together and 
they said, you know, the United States has never hosted the World Choral Symposium, mm -hmm. and we think it should happen in Minneapolis. Yeah. And uh, uh, we're, we, it's a long process, but, you know, Philip, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I said, oh, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And then they all looked at me and said, good, you're in charge. <laughs> and I went, um, oops. <laughs> and that meant going, uh, I had to make a pitch to yeah. the international board. Right. And that meeting was in Stockholm. Mm. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go to this group. They haven't got a clue who Minneapolis, where Minneapolis is. Right. Or anything. So I had to figure out how do you entice people who've never heard of you to think this is the place that we should have a, a world symposium. And uh, so I prepared material. Uh, I remember thinking, what would they know about Minneapolis? And I figured the one thing they'd know is that it's the Mississippi River. And that was true. They did know. So that, so that if I could talk about the fact that uh, that we are the state where the Mississippi begins ah, and goes down. And we also are the state where Wheaties are made. Oh, yes, they knew about no, cereal. Some, yeah, some cereal So that stuff. would be good. So then I went to the guy. <laughs> Did you mention Bob Dylan or? No, 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 no. 2002, no. you would have mentioned no. Prince? No, I, mean... I didn't. No, no, no. Not to these, not to these coral folk from Europe. No, believe <laughs> okay. me. No, and so I went and made uh, the pitch, and I realized how. But I needed something visual, so I called uh, someone, uh, the the PR person at General Mills, yeah. and said, "Could you do me a favor and make thir thirty boxes of Wheaties, but instead of a sports figure like you use, could you have a choir on the cover?" Mm. And then. Uh -huh. And which they did, hmm. and then they boxed them up and shipped them to Stockholm for me. Oh, so yeah. I presented each person with a Wheaties box and and other PR material from yeah. the Chamber of Commerce. Right. But the fact was that convinced them, oh, this place they're serious, and we got the bid. And and what it ended up when I say it was formative, by the time we did it, there were people that came here from 69 countries mm. and so we had a couple thousand people and I just of course got to know right international names from right. all over so it was a very uh formative occasion for me yeah so so you the lesson I think you might have picked up is that when a bunch of people just sort of start looking in your direction you're like here we go again it's true. It's and it has happened many, many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, in preparation for this episode, I reached out to people who know you and um, said, well, do you, do you have a question for Philip? And uh, Gail Fugit, our friend Gail, uh, has the question in this sort of space. Can you think of what was the most powerful experience you've ever had leading or performing? You got to pick one most powerful experience for you and it wow. could be per, as a performer uh, or or leading a group the most challenging probably was conducting william balcom's songs of innocence and experience mm. which is this big two-hour piece i did at orchestra hall which was for 200 voice chorus and 110 orchestra yeah. and with people all around. That was an amazing experience to try to do. Um, I mm. would just say it would be more the, the occasions when I was uh, making music with people who were of international renown, mm -hmm. working with, say, someone like Sir Peter Piers, mm. And accompanying him and going, I am accompanying Peter Pierce. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. You A know, kid from Austin. You know, I recorded Aaron Copeland's opera, the first person to do that. Yeah. You know, right. it was like, oh. 
So, you know, yeah. I conducted with James Earl Jones. Right. R- yeah. So, I mean, I think some of those were really uh, you know, powerful, memorable. very powerful moments. Well, I often think, too, when we when we look at our lives, you know, we're, we're, we are shaped by where and when we live. And so I'm kind of curious when you when I think back to your life, uh, you know, 68, 69, you're in New York City, you know, RFK and, J- and MLK were both assassinated in, in 1968. How do those moments, cultural moments, affect you? I think what you can remember is where you were mm. when you heard. For instance, I remember very distinctly when I got heard the news that uh, that President Kennedy had been shot, mm-hmm. and I was sixty three. Yeah, I was in the university. I was in the opera workshop building, and someone came running in to say this, and you just went. I mean, well, yeah. disbelief yes. would be the word. You, right. you kind of couldn't believe it. <clears throat> the other one uh, was when Robert Kennedy was shot. Yeah, and I was that summer. That was when I was at the Met. Yeah. And he, that night, I had been free, and the Bolshoi was performing at uh, uh, the Opera House. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'd go see what was going on. Yeah. And they were doing Swan Lake. I remember I bought a ticket from the fifth tier Yeah. and went in there. And a little string of history here. Yeah. Uh, went in and eight o'clock performance. And uh, there was, the curtain didn't go up, nothing. We all wondered. And 8.15, a man steps in front of the curtain and says, <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, because of the death of Robert Kennedy, ballerina Asaluta Maya Puzetskaya will dance the dying swan of Tchaikovsky. There will then be one minute of silence. Everyone stand, and then we will begin Swan Lake. Well, what you have to know, when I was a music history student and Bob Loudon was my teacher, one of the things that had happened during that, talking about ballet at some point, he said, well, the most famous ballet performance, but he said, none of you will ever see it. But he said, was Prizetskaya dancing The Dying Swan. You, you, maybe sometime you'll see it on a f- film. Yeah. I am that night about to see this, and I remember thinking, that's the piece Bob Loudon talked about. Yeah. And I went, oh my. So she came out and danced it, which everyone should see a video. It was stunning. Yeah. When it was over, we all stood up, and then I can still remember, I didn't know anybody standing around me. We all hugged each other and cried. Yeah, I still, and then we sat down, and Swan Lake happened. So then it's years later, and my friend Esco Hemberg says, "Oh, you know, you every few years you've done a famous composer at vocal lessons. You should do Rodion Shadrin, mm. who uh, you Philip may know is married to the ballerina Maya Puzetskaya." And I went, "Wait a minute, <laughs> here she is again." <laughs> And so when I met Shedrine in Chicago, yeah. he was there for a premiere of, of a symphony that yeah. the Chicago Symphony yeah. was doing. I met him at his hotel and I said, you know, I wanted him to come for a week of concerts. Mm-hmm. And then I said, would it be possible that one of the concerts would be your music that you composed of ballets for your wife, Maya Puzetskaya? And he said, she is upstairs. You must ask her yourself. And then she came down. And I saw this woman. <laughs> Last and, seen in 1968. And I went, ah, madam, <laughs> you know. Wow. And then I asked her if she would come and dance at Northrop. Yeah. And i never forget, she was a very much a diva. 
And she just looked at me. She said, because you would offer a week of concerts of my husband's music, I shall come and dance for you. <laughs> and I went, thank you. Yeah. So all these kinds of memories are very, you, you just don't forget them. All right. So here's a new topic. I, I think about, um, you know, we're sitting here at Plymouth Church in your office with all the books. And you have been a, a church musician, organist, and choir director for, you know, over 55 years. At a time when, when you look at the data around um, church attendance or Americans uh, participating in religion, has uh, basically been in decline since 1960. Like the numbers have never gone up. They've only gone down. Right. So how do you think about that? Well, there's several things to mention. One would be, I've always felt there's a big difference between popular music and classical music. Mm -hmm. um, partly because popular music is, in a way, what you would call disposable music. Mm. It doesn't, with a few exceptions, yeah. it, isn't, it isn't music that lasts. Mm. So the music that was popular in the 50s was not popular in the 60s, was not popular in the 70s, mm -hmm. with a few exceptions, right. granted. Yeah. So that the music of today is totally removed. But that's not true of classical music. Mm. Classical music has a sense of comp composition about it mm. that is more long-lasting. Uh, not all pieces, of course, right. but enough of it that there's a certain there's a certain continuity that happens mm. with classical music. And um, I've just, uh, I've never felt that it was going to go away at all. Mm. I think what's changed, and in a wonderful way, certainly for me and I think for all classical musicians, our sense of classical music has broadened mm. greatly. So, for instance, growing up, I would never have known music, uh, for instance, of Mexico. Yeah. I would never have known music of many countries in the yeah. world, which right. I now do. Yeah. Um, and so I think the variety of classical music, of choral music, certainly we know a lot more and we know a lot more about different traditions of that music and mm -hmm. how to perform it. So I've just seen that whole field just expand mm. humongously. And so I don't, you know, I don't see that going away. As far as, um, as far as the uh, uh, church scene, you're absolutely right. Attendance has gone down. When I came to Plymouth Church in the fall of 69, what the one thing I knew about Plymouth Church was that it had been around since the 1850s, yeah. and it had always been known for its music, and its social action preaching. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was inheriting something that had a long history. And I never had to convince people music is important. Mm. People here knew that it was. So over all these years, uh, I've always kept a choir uh, very active and right. a choir of people. It's always stayed right around 50 mm -hmm. uh, in the choir. And there they are, you know, amazing singing. Um, so I think there are still, certainly at Plymouth, enough people and people in the community who know, oh, yes, there is a standard mm -hmm. of choral music that needs to be maintained. And Philip is one of those people who's going to maintain it. Well... And I would say not just choral music. I mean, no. I think about, you know, we at, at Plymouth's, our nine o'clock service, the music these days is generally delivered by a jazz trio, right? Right. But your guidance, your sort of executive leadership, and we'll get to that a little later, of Laura Caviani and Chris Bates and, and that crew has been to say excellence, 
a high quality of performance of, of pedigree is important. Absolutely. You know, yeah. so, so in a way, I, I guess the question I have had for you in this, in this area is to say, you know, how do you continue to innovate in a space that generally speaking might appear to be old and dusty and, and in decline? Um, and, and you've sort of answered that question. It's like, how do you keep it fresh for the, the congregation? How do you keep it fresh for yourself? Uh, because I think if there's one word that would describe my entrance into all of this, it would be curiosity. Yeah. I've always been curious about music and I find new music or I find old music and I go, yeah. wow, I never knew that piece. Right. And here this is, or a piece that maybe I knew 40 years ago and I'm like, how could I have forgotten that piece? Right. And now it's come back. Yeah, I feel like if, if we were could only pick one word to describe you, it would be curiosity. That's right. Um, uh, oh, here's a good question from my cousin, Rick Nelson. Um, sort of a, a very specific question related to uh, churches. Of all the pipe organs you've played around the world, which one stands out as the most sensational pipe organ? Wow. I would have to just first of all say that I'm very attached to the one here at Plymouth Church because I was involved in its construction and design in 1980. Yeah. We had a wonderful Aeolian Skinner, but it just got very old and we needed a new organ. So the one here, I mean, every week that I play it, it's just like, what a joy, how wonderful to to play this uh, this instrument. As far as the most phenomenal organ, um, oh, there's so many great organs. I would say that I loved when I played the organ in Los Angeles at Disney Hall. Uh, it's a phenomenal, big, wonderful pipe organ. And uh, you could just do so many things uh, style-wise with it. But my favorite, bar none, was playing the organ in Paris at Saint-Sulpice, mm. which is the organ that Vidor played, that Dupre played, and now that Daniel Rote plays. So when I was there to visit... Well, and describe it. I mean, to those of us who are not organists, what is it about this? It's got history. Oh, it, well, it's an organ of which many of the pipes on the organ, though they've, some of them have changed, but Mesa, it, it goes back, say, two or 300 years. Hmm. So it's a, it, there's a warmth in yeah. the sound of that and the variety of color mm. that this organ could produce. And uh, so that just hearing it, and you're in a space, I mean, Saint-Sulpice, the acoustic there is so magnificent so that when you play, I mean, it reverberates around the room yeah. and you're up in the balcony in the yeah. back when mm. you play this. And uh, it's uh, it's just a stunning sound to make and with so many different colors. And so what I do remember is when Daniel Rote asked me what I wanted to play, I said, I'd love to play a piece by D Marcel Dupre that he composed for this organ. Mm. And that was the Cortesian Litany, which had been played at our wedding prelude. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I can play it. Let's do that one. Huh. And so there I was playing this piece. Danielle did the pulling and pushing of stops because mm. uh, you can't do both at that yeah. organ. It's yeah. like huge uh, semicircular uh, group of stops. So, uh, yeah, that would be the one that stands out. All right. That's great. Um, well, here's sort of a, a, a yet another kind of our sort of last major sort of thematic uh, penultimate direction. And I'm thinking about um, detail versus vision or kind of hands on or hands in versus um, executive production. And you started your career, as, as we all do, uh, you know, as a performer. Right. So you were a singer. Um, you were, a, you know, a, a pianist, um, but then you migrated to a leadership role 
and not and not all performers do that. Uh, right. You know, some people stay in the choir or they stay, you know, the third violin. Um, why did you evolve? What drew you to leading others in a creative? Um, what motivated that shift to to becoming a creative leader? Uh, being offered uh, a position, for instance, being offered the position at Minnesota Opera to be the music director mm -hmm. meant I had to make decisions beyond just simply conducting uh, an opera by Argento. Mm -hmm. I had to make a lot of decisions about casting, about rehearsals, about uh, then talking to people about raising money for this. Mm -hmm. I mean, suddenly the world of how I was going to make this piece of music work were not limited. I couldn't just stay with uh, the way I was conducting it. It would have to become much more mm -hmm. if you believed in what you were doing. So when I came to start Vocal Essence, it was the same idea that I had wow, if I want this to work, uh, A, of course I have to believe in what I'm doing, mm -hmm. but then I have to convince other people that this is really important, that it has a role to play, not only for vocal essence, but a role to play for our community, to get people excited about why music that you've never heard is really exciting mm -hmm. to hear. Yeah, so I have another question from... Uh... Our friend, the uh, the broadcaster uh, and and talent, uh, Don Shelby. See, his question is this: Your knowledge of theory and your ear are so finely tuned. How do you cope with anything that isn't perfection? I, I cringe. <laughs> I mean, you hear things and you go, "Oh." Okay, it's out of tune, yeah. and oh. uh, you have to just sometimes look at, okay, but you know, this performer is doing their best, mm -hmm. and uh, I wish it was uh, more in tune than I'm hearing, but you know, why are they doing it? They're doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Here it is. I'm going to... I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to it that way. It's a bit of a curse, right? You've got perfect pitch. What are you gonna do? You yeah. know? No, you just you just sit there and you smile and you go you go forward. Yeah. And you just you become grateful that you have this, but you also realize it becomes a challenge. Today, uh, on the one hand, you are a doer. You are the organist. Yep. Right? Uh uh but on the other, you are sort of the executive leader and a visionary, right? Which is, I think, unusual. Well, it would be unusual in sort of like a Fortune 500 area. The CEO isn't also operating the machines, you right. know? How do, so how do you balance the macro and the micro? Well, of course, as I said earlier, if you believe in what it is you're doing, you just simply will find a way to... Uh, balance the time you need to study the music and be prepared on one hand, mm -hmm. at the same time <clears throat> realizing uh, that you have to uh, make this all come together. You have to envision the time necessary mm -hmm. for the learning of it and the raising of money. Uh, I will say that as far as vocal essence is concerned, <clears throat> uh, to me, it's always been important, depending on whatever size staff you can muster, mm -hmm. uh, you just need the best people. And I can tell you right now, the entire 10 people who work at Vocal Essence, I would trust them all. They know what they're doing. And when someone has been hired, to me, it's just important we get the best people and they do their job. And so mm -hmm. consequently, I can envision what we need to do knowing I'll share this information with them mm -hmm. and knowing that they will get it and they will be part of this team so that it isn't something where I'm throwing something at them. It's something where they are part of the whole creative process. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads to a good question. So executive leadership uh, within the arts, within creativity, um, not, not that this isn't true in, in 
you know, banking or finance or whatever. But it would, the, the stereotype in is that there's a lot of, that there can be emotions. Uh, uh, that there's uh, so oh, really <laughs> that there's subjectivity and that there's personalities or maybe uh, there's a greater allowance for emotions and personality and subjectivity given your experiences uh, you know growing up in this space and evolving what advice do you have for other founders or leaders in the arts broadly uh, on, on the role of executive leadership if you're going to be in that role, you know, you believe in what you are wanting to see happen. You have a vision for it. You can see an end result. This piece of music fits so perfectly what our mission is that I know if we can perform it at a high level, we can make converts to why choral music is so unique. And of course, the great thing about choral music is the fact it's the one form of music that not only combines singing, but text. Mm. So you've got both of them together. It isn't just one, it's both. And to me, that telling someone, you know, you've really got to understand the vision of what it is you're doing mm -hmm. and know and knowing that you can pull it off. If you're at all nervous and are not sure that you can do it, then I say, uh, why don't you find a different job? Mm -hmm. Because you really have to know that you can make this work, that you believe in it, and that you can, you can share this joy, mm -hmm. which it is, yeah. with other people. So uh, part of what I'm hearing you say is just the, the, Let's not kid ourselves that when you decide I'm going to lead a, an arts organization, and again, not to say that this isn't true of, of again, of, of say, a, a finance organization or, or whatever, but especially in a creative organization, it's a bit of a higher wire act, in, in, in part because of the performance side of it. You know, uh, a, a banker writes a contract, a, 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 you know, a, a marketer does a marketing plan, but a, a performing organization at the end of the day, there's a performance. Mm -hmm. There is a, a, a show that, that occurs in the art gallery uh, or, or on stage. Um, and, and so what I'm hearing you say is, is to, to recognize and embrace that high wire uh, uh, as part of the deal. I would say the other thing is I have this amazing, deep love of singing because singing is the most vulnerable kind of performance there is. It's the only art form where you can't see any of the instrument. Mm -hmm. It's all inside your throat. Right. And so when you get up in the morning and you're going to be, let's say you're a trumpet player and you have to play a concerto, oh, you may not feel very well, but you know what? You can still do it. Right. It may not be your best quality, but you can do it. You are a singer and you wake up in the morning with a sore throat and you suddenly, or you have laryngitis and you go, I can't sing. Yeah. You've, it's gone. Right. The vulnerability of what you do when you open your mouth and that mm. sound comes out to me is just fascinating and exciting. So I'm always, every time I conduct and I hear these voices, I'm like, Wow, how wonderful to hear what they're able to do and how they can express what it is that the music is giving them. Yeah. So um, you've heard of Martha Stewart. I have. Publisher, um, entrepreneur. I've not heard her sing. No. Do you know, uh, so she's 82 and uh, most recently was on the cover uh, of Sports Illustrated's swimsuit issue. And I read this on, in a magazine, I mean, yeah. in a newspaper. Yeah. So I was listening to an interview with her recently, and um, she basically just doesn't recognize the word retirement. Why um, would you? Right. So what's your, what's your take on that sentiment? Well, I'm not going to retire. At the same time, I'm very aware of my own abilities. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I felt that I was not able to perform 
at the level that I demand of myself, then I would have to say, okay, let's think about this. Maybe this is time to step back. Uh, in, in whatever that happens to In be. whatever that is, yeah. whether it's, uh, whether it's a, a playing the organ, whether it's conducting, you know, whatever that might happen to be. Yeah. I know at this point, I feel great and I feel confident in what I'm doing. But it's something that you, at any age, right. you have to keep in mind and say, hmm, maybe this is time for me or, no, I'm good, we can continue, but not yeah. to delude yourself. Speaking of broadcasters, we were talking about Don, but Eric Friesen sends in a question. Eric asks, Oscar Wilde said we should all have a redeemable vice. Philip, what is your redeemable vice? Oh, my word. <laughs> my redeemable vice. Well, for me then, in music, it would be always looking for the next piece of music that I've never heard of, mm -hmm. that I need to search for. You're sort of this insatiable quest. Oh, absolutely. So I'm always looking for, what could this be? This, so that was, that's definitely a vice for mm. me, mm. finding whether it's an old piece or it's a composer that I've never heard of. And I think, hmm, what's this? That would become a vice for me. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, oh, and uh, so here's a question from a, a friend of yours who actually, this individual whose question we're going to hear uh, he is the very first voice, whenever you listen to this podcast, his is the first voice that you hear. <laughs> Whose voice is that? That was when we did Paul Bunyan. And that is? Dan Dressen. There you go. So here is a question from Dan Dressen. Of all your countless accomplishments, is there one significant aspiration at the top of your list yet to be achieved? What's your next mountaintop? I hope I can reach it. One of my goals was and is to try and memorize all of the Bach, the 200 Bach sacred cantatas. Hmm. Memorize. Yes. That you could just call them up. You sit down at the piano and there you go. Right. I mean, I can sit down at the piano and, and, and play the entire... Uh, uh, Handel Messiah, mm -hmm. of course, and I can play, you know, I can get going with most all of me certain Mendelssohn things, mm -hmm. but the Bacchantatas, I've always thought, ooh, I sort of at one point got through about 50 of them mm -hmm. and was going along, but wow, to, can but I to, do more? But to memorize, mm -hmm. memorize them, huh? Mm -hmm. hmm. That may not be a mountain that I'm going to reach, yeah. so, but hey, I've got time. All right. Um, uh, okay, let's let's continue. Countries you have not yet visited, but would but aspire to visit. I would love to visit India. I mm. would love to visit Tibet. The one in Europe I haven't gotten to, which I'm going to get to, I must, is Ireland. Really? Oh, that's right. You haven't it's been to Ireland. The one I haven't been to Ireland. Mm. Uh, and I've never been to Israel and Jordan. Oh. So well, I'd like to get, those would be some of the ones I want to see. Mm -hmm. There's also a bunch of them I would love to get back to that right. I loved. So, yeah. you know, that would happen. But those are ones I haven't visited. Okay. So who or what is inspiring you today? What's motivating you in the moment right now here and, you know, coming in July of 2023? You look around and it's like, that person, what they're doing, yes. And where are you drawing your energy from? Uh, I would say I'm drawing my energy from, uh, again, just uh, because I'm a voracious reader. Mm. So I'm always looking and seeing, oh, here's a poet I don't know. I want to spend some time reading that person's poetry because maybe that could be a piece set to music. Mm, right. So that would be one for me. 
I would think also I would. Who, who have you? Any poets you care you care to name that have kind of jumped out recently? Well, no, but sometimes it's old poets. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, it's like you might know some of their poetry, but there's so much. You know, a poet like say George Herbert, mm -hmm. the metaphysical poet. Well, I know a lot of poet of his work, but not all by right. any means. And I think, ooh, I'll find. And then I think about some of these people who are recent uh, poet laureates mm -hmm. for the U.S. Yeah, and I think about, wow, it'd be great to get to know their work better. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, people like that. But I think also I'm uh, I become uh, fascinated and inspired uh, by hearing. Uh, other choirs repertoire they do and I go wow you know we don't know that piece I don't know that piece mm -hmm. why don't we take that one on mm -hmm. and so you know in my perfect world which will not ever happen I would love it that we could have uh, here at Vocal Essence a concert of uh, music every day <laughs> but you know there is a little thing called rehearsal time oh yeah and then there's a second thing called an audience right you yeah. know uh, and so but oh there's so much music out there to do so so it's it's a joyful frustration well happy birthday to you 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 are a, a massive inspiration and so it's a a thrill to chat with you about the things that motivate you and kind of push you forward uh, you know, into age 80 and beyond. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, happy birthday, Dad. Thanks. And there you have it, an 80th birthday spectacular. Many thanks to those of you who sent in questions for Philip. If you've got a topic for Philip to discuss, from choral direction to playing the organ, running a musical nonprofit, or resilience in your 80s, please search for the Renaissance Man podcast on Facebook and send us a message on that platform. We're going to return in a couple of weeks. Our next episode will be a preview of Vocalessence's 55th season. Philip will run down all of the exploits and adventures they've got planned. Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs>